On the original Good Friday, Jesus' death had some epic implications. Trent Griffith explains. There was a cosmic theological transaction where Jesus was treated as if he had committed every act of injustice, as if he was a racist, as if he was a self-righteous bigot. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God on the cross and he wanted his disciples to understand, I'm about to fight the battle on the cross that none of your swords and none of your money and none of your means is going to be able to accomplish because it is a cosmic transaction that you need. Welcome to Resonate with Trent Griffith, Senior Pastor of Gospel City Church in Granger, Indiana. I'm Aaron Paulus. It's hard to believe, but Easter is just around the corner. This year, Easter is on Sunday, April 4th. You know, for Christians, Easter is about a lot more than new shoes, candy-filled eggs, and bunny rabbits. It's the time in our year when we place special emphasis on the suffering, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Without these things, our faith is meaningless. And to quote the Apostle Paul, we'd still be dead in our sins. So what we observe this time of year is absolutely essential to Christianity. Here on Resonate, Pastor Trent has been taking us through the various events leading up to Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection. He's been looking at the account as recorded in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. So if you have your Bible nearby, why don't you grab it and follow along? Here's Pastor Trent with part two of the message, Come Closer to the Cross. First thing that I want you to see is this. The closer I get to the cross, the more Jesus changes my definition of greatness. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 24. A dispute also rose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Verse 25 says, He, Jesus, said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater? the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? And he answers it based on the worldly definition. Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom, in my kingdom, and sit on thrones and judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus turns their definition of greater than and less than upside down. Now, hopefully we don't make the same mistake that these disciples make. In beginning to compare ourselves, who's greater than? Our value and our worth and our dignity is not based on worldly definitions of greatness. The world defines 
greatness based on your test scores and your net worth and your athletic ability and your attractiveness and your Instagram followers and the square footage of your home and a million other things that will have zero value in the kingdom of God. Jesus wants us to understand the true definition of greatness. Please understand the cross teaches us there are no individuals, no groups, and no races that are greater than others. Jesus brings us to a place where we humble ourselves. And those of us that have success and achievement and education and power and wealth and money in this world, we understand that God gives us those things to help others, not to exercise superiority as we compare ourselves to others, to feel greater or superior in comparison to another person because of your skin color or your family of origin or your heritage or your personal achievement is sinful and it must be crucified at the cross. If that's your attitude, you don't understand the cross. And Jesus invites you to come with him to the cross. As your pastor, I invite you to come to the cross and see the place of humility and love and sacrifice where the greatest, ultimate person in all the universe did not think of himself as superior, but laid his life down for his friends. Do you desire true greatness? You need a daily encounter with the cross and you'll, it'll, that cross will have two effects on your life. Number one, the cross crucifies self-exalting, people-oppressing pursuits of greatness. And number two, the cross inspires us to spend whatever worldly greatness we have to make others great. Those with worldly greatness desire to be served. They want everybody else waiting on them, bringing them the stuff at the table, doing everything for them. But those who achieve kingdom greatness are driven to serve others. Those with worldly greatness, they have a desire to be a success in the eyes of the world. But those with kingdom greatness desire to make others a success. Those with worldly greatness feel superior when they compare themselves with others. Those with kingdom greatness feel the need for mercy and grace in comparison to the holiness of God. Those with worldly greatness use their power to protect their position. Those with kingdom greatness use their power to protect and empower others. Those with worldly greatness gravitate toward people in power. Those with kingdom greatness gravitate toward people in need. Those with worldly greatness are quick to share how much they know. I mean, they're real quick to tell you everything that they think and their opinions and their solutions and what they think the problem is. Those with kingdom greatness are overwhelmed with how much they still have to learn. Those with kingdom greatness are defensive when criticized. They put up walls because they don't want to feel inferior. But those with kingdom greatness invite criticism as an opportunity to grow. Those with worldly greatness have a critical spirit 
that detects problems. Those with kingdom greatness are critical thinkers who offer solutions. Those with worldly greatness think this way. This church is so privileged to have me. Those with kingdom greatness think this way. I don't deserve how richly I've been blessed by the ministries of this church. What a privilege to serve. It's a wonder they would want me at all. And finally, those with worldly greatness turn away from God when they experience trials. Why is that? Because they're so great. I don't deserve to go through this. God, why am I sick? Why did I lose my job? Don't you know how great I am? Don't you exist, God? You you exist to serve me. And because they don't have a proper theology of trial, they don't understand when bad things happen to them because in their mind, they don't deserve it. They're so great. But for those with kingdom greatness, they turn toward God in trials. They don't wonder why bad things happen to good people. They wonder why anything good happens at all. Because in humility, we understand we don't deserve anything. And it's that posture of humility that allows us to live out the cross of Christ to a world that knows nothing of true greatness. The greatest disciple serves those who are powerless, poor, and oppressed. The greatest church preaches a gospel that creates humble servants sent to those that need grace the most. The greatest nation builds its policies into laws that protect and make provision for those who are under-resourced and most vulnerable. The last thing that Jesus says here in verse 30, it's, it's kind of interesting. He's telling these heady disciples that they've stayed with him in the trial, and then he promises that he's going to give them a kingdom, and they are going to sit on thrones. It's amazing. Do you see what he's saying? If you will humble yourself and become a servant in this world, no act of service will ever be unrewarded in the next. You want true greatness in the next, in the, in the next life, in the kingdom of God? Then use your opportunity your power, your influence, and your worldly greatness to serve so you can be great in the kingdom of God. Now, here's the next point. The closer we get to the cross, the closer we get to the cross, the more Scripture defends me in the face of opposition. This is what we're going to do. We're going to skip the next paragraph there. You might notice in your Bible it's talking about Jesus foretelling Peter's denial, it's a familiar story. We're going to deal with that next week. I'm going to lump that into another section next week. I want to skip down to the next paragraph there. Verse 35 says this. He said to them, When I sent you with no money bags or knapsack or sandal, did you lack anything? They said, No, we didn't lack anything. Verse 36, And he said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Now, Jesus is calling to their attention, reminding them that previously he had sent them out and said, don't take a knapsack, don't take any money, don't even take an extra set of clothes. You're not going to need them. 
And the reason they didn't need them then when they went to go preach the gospel, because at that time, Jesus was very popular. And uh, they could just kind of lay the Jesus card on the table and somehow their meal would get taken care of. And, and it, they, they had a very favorable response. The people invited them to be a part of their community. But now, he says, very important transition piece here. Verse 36, but now. What's happening now? In the next 24 hours, Jesus is going to be betrayed, arrested, tried, crucified, dead. His popularity is gone. And because they're associated with Jesus, they're going to need to make provision to take care of themselves. And so he tells them, you might want to get a knapsack. You might want to use some money. You're probably going to need some money. You might even want to get a sword. And, And really the teaching here is Jesus is giving his disciples, and that extends to us, the permission, even the command to use as many means as possible to preach the gospel, to call people to repent of sin. And and that's good news because we've got some resources around here. You've got resources. It's part of your paycheck and you've got a house and you've got a car. And and as a church, we've invested in a building and and that's that's just simply a tool. And Jesus is saying, you might want to get some stuff. You're, You're allowed to use stuff to accomplish the mission. In verse 37, he says this, For I tell you that this scripture, underline the word scripture there in verse 37, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. What scripture? He's getting ready to quote from probably the most important chapter in the Old Testament scriptures. Isaiah chapter 53. And Luke just records one statement of it. He says, And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here, we have two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. It's almost comical. They found a couple of swords and Jesus like, yeah, you don't really understand here. The war you're about to face is going to be a spiritual war. Two swords, uh, 11 guys against um, the entire Roman Empire. Good luck with that. What you're going to need is to understand Isaiah 53 and its prophecy about me. What is in Isaiah 53? It is the description of what Christ accomplished on the cross. And here's what it says in its entirety, actually picking up in verse 3. He, Jesus, this was written 700 years before the cross. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. It's a description of what happened on the cross. There was a cosmic, doctrinal, theological transaction where Jesus was treated as if he had committed every act of injustice, as if he was a racist, as if he was a self-righteous bigot. 
Jesus absorbed the wrath of God on the cross and He wanted His disciples to understand, I'm about to fight the battle on the cross that none of your swords and none of your money and none of your means is going to be able to accomplish because it is a cosmic transaction that you need. And so it's understanding the, the message of the Bible from cover to cover was all pointing to the cross and what Jesus would accomplish on that cross. Do you understand the Bible that you have is not just a book that contains good advice on how to be nicer and gentler. That, there's some of that, but all of it flows from the price that was paid on the cross. The story of the Bible is not good advice. It is the good news of what Christ did on behalf of sinners like you and me. And so the closer I get to the cross, the more Scripture defends me in the face of opposition. Here's the final point. The closer I get to the cross, the more temptation I will face to close my eyes. Let's pick up the story here in verse 39. It's a familiar story of Jesus praying in what we call the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, verse 39. And He came out and went, as was His custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed Him. What is the definition of a disciple? Those who follow Jesus. And if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you're going to follow Jesus to the place of pain and the place of prayer. They followed Jesus to the place of prayer. Verse 40, And when He came to the place, He said to them, Pray that you may not enter temptation. And He withdrew about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in, an, in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation." Whenever you're facing the most difficult circumstances, the place that we go as disciples is the place of prayer. As, as you continue to see the things that just have such complexities to them, the issues of race and injustice and what does that mean for us and in our time and what did it mean back then? And listen, we can talk about policy changes and, and law enforcement, but for those of us who follow Jesus, the first thing to do is to pray. Listen, before you start offering your opinions about what needs to be fixed, have you followed Jesus to the place of prayer? And understand this, the place of the cross is an is a really ugly, bloody place. It's a place that we don't want to look. We don't want to see Jesus bloody hanging on the cross in our place. It offends us. But if you can keep your eyes open, unlike these disciples, let me tell you five things you'll see very quickly. First of all, you'll see the will of God in your surrender. This is where we we come to the place of prayer and the first thing that we pray is, Lord, as, as I'm expressing what I want from you, I 
surrender my will to your will. Jesus brought His will under the will of the Father, which is an incredible concept to think that Jesus had a will, and yet He surrendered. He didn't want to go to the cross, and yet He knew that was His destiny, His purpose, and the purpose for which He came. And so He surrendered His will to the Father. And I know that for me, there's a daily surrender, because I want some things. I don't want to do some things. I don't want to go to a place of pain. And in the place of prayer, we come and we align our will under the will of God. If you could see everything God sees, you would not question anything God does. And that's the point at which you pull your will under the will of the Father. But you got to stay awake. you got to keep your eyes open in order for that to happen. If you, if you keep your eyes open you're going to see the strength of God in your weakness. Jesus here was strengthened by an angel. And I, I believe that God has these warriors that He assigns to territory. And, and that's the story of these angels that act as messengers of God to remind us of truth and encourage us in the middle of pain. Jesus had a ministering angel for Him. If Jesus needed a ministering angel, how much more do I need one? Lord, send the angels to help and strengthen us in time of need. If you can keep your eyes open at the cross, you'll see the wrath of God in Jesus on the cross. The Scripture mentions a cup, and Jesus says, if it's your will, would you let this cup pass? I don't want to drink what's in this cup. So the question is, what's in the cup? Throughout the Old Testament, it's imagery of the wrath of God, a, a container for the wrath of God on sin. Here's what we learn from that. The full wrath of God has yet to be poured out on the world. It's coming. It's called the day of the Lord. Until that time, do you know what's happening to that cup? It's filling up with every sin, with every iniquity, with every act of hatred. There's another drop that goes into the cup of God's wrath. The Father offered it to Jesus, and Jesus said, I don't want it. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And He embraced that cup, and on the cross, in His pain, in His agony, He took the wrath of God upon Himself to save all those who would repent of sin and place their faith in Christ. But listen, if you reject Jesus, all of the wrath for your sin that's in that cup is going to fall on you in judgment. If you will open your eyes to what Jesus did on that cross and understand the greatest act of humility was for the person who needed the greatest act of grace. And if you open your heart to Him, the wrath of God can be averted because of what Christ did on that cross. If you keep your eyes open, another thing you're going to see is the grace of God in your temptation. Jesus again says, pray, rise and pray that you may not enter temptation. All of us face temptation to doubt and run and judge and express hatred and to make ourselves greater than others. That's why we need to pray that God would turn us from those temptations of self-exalting, people-oppressing attitudes and embrace what we learn at the foot of the cross. There's one more thing, and that is we will see 
the family of God in the church. In the book of John, John, the disciple of Jesus, records for us what Jesus was actually praying. And do you know one of the things that he prayed? He prayed that we, the disciples of Jesus, would be one. Not divided, aligned under the authority of the Word of God and the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And it is not until we get to the cross where we lay what divides us aside and we align ourselves under Christ. And then we understand that all that we see in the world is the result of sin and all that we need is a proper understanding of the cross. Could I invite you to bow your heads right now? And just in this moment, would you ask Jesus to redefine your definition of greatness? Would you lay down your pride? Would you take up your cross? Would you humbly adopt the posture of a servant? And no matter how much greatness it costs you in the world, would you consider kingdom greatness greater than worldly greatness. Jesus, thank you for the example of going to the cross on our behalf. You endured agony and pain and sorrow, sweat drops of blood, the greatest act of humility to embrace the greatest act of injustice. And Father, we pray that you would heal what's broken in our hearts that causes us to think of ourselves as greater than anyone else. As your disciples, Lord, we adopt the position of servants. Use your church to step into what's broken in this world, to serve those who need grace the most. And Lord, I pray that we would exalt what you have done on the cross in our place as a substitute for our sin. The only thing that can heal this world is the gospel of Jesus. Make us servants to speak and to show the mercy that's available there. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, amen. When we think about all that Jesus went through, we can't help but saying, hallelujah, what a savior. We just heard Trent Griffith, senior pastor of Gospel City Church. You know, Gospel City is committed to what we call our four pillars. Here they are, proclaiming the authority of God's word without apology, lifting high the name of Jesus through worship, believing firmly in the power of prayer, and sharing the good news of Jesus with boldness. You know, every time we gather, we touch on each of these four pillars in one way or another, and we'd love to have you worship with us. You can find more information about when and where we gather, including information about our upcoming Good Friday and Easter Sunday celebrations. It's all there when you visit mygospelcity.org. Again, that's mygospelcity.org. 
Our Facebook page also has a lot of great content, and you can find us on Facebook by searching for Gospel City Church. Well, there's an intriguing character in the story leading up to Jesus' death. It's the disciple who betrayed Jesus. Next week on Resonate, Pastor Trent takes a closer look at Judas Iscariot and what we can learn from his tragic life. Well, thanks for listening today. I'm Aaron Paulus, and my prayer is that God's word and true humility would resonate in your life this week. Resonate with Trent Griffith is a ministry of Gospel City Church. Visit us online at mygospelcity.org.